everybody. Well, welcome to the third annual McAfee School of Theology live podcasting event. My name is Ryan Miller. I am the co-director of Brew Theology. The better half over here, Janelle Labs Ramsey is the other co-director. Hey. We're honored to be here. This is a beautiful place. They don't call it Hotlanta, do they? Nobody calls it that here. So I, Nathan was up here earlier and he was talking about beer and which beers you guys may or may not like. So some of you are beer drinkers, and some of you, I, I may have to lay hands later, because Miller Lite, my last name is Miller, and I'm always like, man, it's one, it's a generic last name, and it's a really bad beer. But for the rest of you out there, yeah. So, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so, okay. If you, if you are a beer nerd, if you are a connoisseur of the nectar of the gods, and whether or not you actually like all beers doesn't really matter, okay? You, you respect beers. So you go in and you get a stout, maybe an imperial stout, but you wait and you hold off on that. You start off with a pilsner, maybe a kolsch. You move on to a lager, maybe a bohemian ale. And then if you want to get crafty and you get hopped up on the piney stuff, which I know we were talking earlier today, you don't like the pine. Guess what? Yuck. You're friends with Janelle. She hates the pine, too. Barrel-aged stouts, maybe. You might get juiced up on some New England and... When you leave the brewery, I'm not saying you drink all 16 ounces, but you drink the flight, four ounces, and you maybe share it with a friend or two. Regardless of your palate, you respect all other drinks around that, right? Am I right? right. So here, uh, who we are at Brew Theology is that we respect not only all palates, but all worldviews, all cultural ideologies, all religions, all walks of life. And so what we actually get to do is we get to Brew Theology and create interfaith communities across the religious spectrum. And we do that through what we think is healthy, meaningful, and eclectic dialogue in pubs and coffee houses. And we also get to talk to some amaz- amazing, I would say like top-notch totally. theologians, and not just Christians, but uh, from all different religions. And so the fact that we're here tonight, and we get to talk with two professors from the McAfee School of Theology. And I got to say, though, if you're here and you're looking at going to seminary, uh, you gotta, you got to drink the whole flight, is what I'm saying. So, and you don't have to agree with the professor at the end of the night, but you're like, that was good for me and good for my soul. Believe me, I grew up Southern Baptist, okay, and here I am now. I'm drinking beer in this wayward, slippery slope Baptist church. No. So, without further ado, we're going to bring up our first guest tonight. And uh, you all know him, and if you don't, you're going to get to know him. We just had a nice chat earlier, Dr. Rob Nash. And so, Rob, you're going to come on up, sit in between Janelle and I. Thank you. So, Rob is the Associate Dean for the Doctor of Ministry Program, which means if you want a demon, I guess maybe have a beer with him later. The man to see. Yeah. (laughs) The man to see. All right. Uh, So, uh, there's a new book that you wrote. Now go up a little bit. And, okay. uh, All right. This book, uh, I, I was honored and privileged to read it, and I didn't send it to anybody, I promise. Thank you. It's called. <laughs> <laughs> None of you students send it to anybody either, please. <laughs> it's called Moving the Equator The Families of the Earth and the Mission of the Church. So you began writing this book about 53 years ago after an exactly. encounter that you witnessed with your father and a Muslim merchant in the Philippines. Right. So. I know this is probably a long story, and you could probably talk, talk about this one for hours, but that set you on a trajectory that eventually got you to pin this book down. So can you just start off and talk to us more about your journey as a kid and where it's taking you today before you started this book? Absolutely. I, I remember as a boy of about four, my father one day picking me up and sitting me on a kitchen counter and saying, Rob, how would you like to go to the Philippines? 
And for me, that was just like, you know, the next county or something. But I agreed, and next thing I know, I'm on a boat 21 days across the Pacific, and we wind up in the Philippines. And the story in the book is the day my dad decided he wanted to purchase a Quran. So we went down to the store of a merchant, and dad was determined to buy the book, and the merchant was determined not to sell it to him. And both of them are coming out of their own religious worldviews and perspectives. And as I listened to them as a seven or eight-year-old boy sort of talk, I realized, you know, I, I don't know what an infidel is, but this guy just called my dad an infidel. And I know my dad thinks this guy's going to hell. And wow, this is really interesting. And so that really launched me on this sort of lifelong search for uh, what it means to be religious, where our understanding of God comes from, what, religion, what happens to religions when they move across cultures and engage people who are other and different from them, uh, and just the way we morph and change and uh, become the people that we are. So the book's literally about that journey. That's so cool. I was lucky to get to go to the Parliament of the World's Religions uh, last November and um, to experience the wideness of that collection of people and religions. And there they were handing out Qurans if you wanted Mm -hmm. one Mm -hmm. because they believe in sharing that. I love that. So you talk about in your book that the equator is moving, and I don't think you mean specifically climate change. Um, So what are the biggest changes facing Christianity today as the equator starts to move? It's been my conviction for a long time that the greatest challenge that the church faces is its inordinate fear of otherness and difference. And that's okay as long as you occupy your own silos and your own spaces. But when the globe shrinks... You know, I said I'd been 21 days across the Pacific in 64, 21 hours back across the Pacific in 1968. So I had a front row seat for the shrinking of the globe. You know, the borders of the U.S. opened immigration in 65 with the uh, Immigration Act, and suddenly we find ourselves inhabiting a whole different world Uh, That, with a church that is insular and separate, that's been sending missionaries across the ocean, but hasn't engaged much otherness and difference in its own context. And so we had a church, we have a church that is not prepared for the challenges of its current time. Um, For me, in my social location, that is what I call or describe as Euro-tribal churches. And I get that term from Alan Roxborough, who's done a lot of work on the missional church. Um, But yeah, so that's the challenge that we face. Absolutely. So you write this in your book, and I'm going to quote you. You say, perhaps the most difficult challenge for us is to realize that human cultures are themselves divine gifts in much the same way that Scripture... The church and the Christian tradition are divine gifts. I I like this. I love this. This is great. So how do we, 
let's say we as in, we're on the same page here, more progressive leaning Christians here. How do we move toward that posture without more, let's say, let's just say uh, traditionally classic evangelical Christians, right? Without them thinking that we're heretics, okay? And uh, because there's that elevation of, of reason and experience that in their eyes would trump scripture. Right. Well, the only response I can give is that we have to read Scripture differently. Somehow, we've got to help even the most conservative among us to discover the realities in Scripture that have not been available to them uh, because of the way they've been reading the Bible. For a time, well, let me just put it this way. What has to happen for us is that we begin to read Scripture through the lens of culture instead of reading culture through the lens of Scripture. And by doing that, we suddenly find ourselves unlocking parts of it that we didn't even know existed. We've gotten into the same furrow of interpretation, and we think we're reading the Bible for what it says but we're reading the Bible for what our culture tells us it says and not for what it actually says. Um, Another way to put it, uh, Krista Tippett uh, talks about it as doing some independent study on the Bible, doing it outside the boundaries, the walls that our Christian tradition has put around us so that we're playing with it and trying to figure out what it says that we haven't noticed before. How do we bring conservative folks along with us? Because some of what you just said would terrify them. (laughs) And they would be like, nope, you're going to hell. So how do we, what are some ways that we help bring them along that's not going to spook them, maybe? Yeah. That's a, it's a tremendous challenge, and we, one of the things that's been most helpful to me is to actually go back into the church as a pastor, yeah. which I've done over the last couple of years. And, you know, you can talk about this all you want to in the ivory tower, right? But when you go into the church and you find that people have traditional ideas, you preach a sermon about... Uh, being in solidarity with people who are from the black church tradition and somebody comes up to you after church and says they're tired of uh, people you know talking badly about white privilege and they don't want that to happen anymore and i shouldn't be doing it from the pulpit it reminds me how far we have to go Uh, i think of it as guerrilla warfare all right i know that's a violent image i'm sorry but it's what we have to do yeah And what we have to do is just begin to go in and break down the foundations by exposing the church to things it's not noticed before. And so one of the ways I try to do that in the book is through the story of the Tower of Babel and talking about how God's intention from the beginning is that we were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what we have failed to do What we failed to do in the first 11 chapters of Genesis was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So then at the point of the Tower of Babel story, 
Uh, God basically says what my mother used to say to my brother and me, don't make me come down there, right? <laughs> God says, yeah. let us go down there and separate them into their various cultures because God's intention from the beginning that we be diverse and come at this from a multiplicity of cultures had not been accomplished. Well, a very traditional kind of person can, can sort of grasp that. And uh, you can begin to point out places in Scripture where that intention of God was frustrated. And I think people will at least come with you along on some of the journey in that direction. And, and I definitely want to get back to mission specifically when it comes to the context of Scriptures as you start with Tower of Babel, we'll get to Abraham. We won't be able to get to all the Gospels and Paul. We'll touch on a few of those pictures. I think those are, those are really important analogies, specifically when we talk to people who come from a faith tradition that's rooted in Scripture. So uh, I want to go back to phenomenology, okay? And, and maybe perhaps your own experiences with it as well, as you have been a global traveler, a person on mission, and you've been in a variety of different contexts. And so when you see the intersection of worldview, cultural ideologies, and everything kind of coming coming together. It's almost like being in New York City for the first time, and it just bl blows your mind a bit. Yeah. And so in this, in this sort of idea of divine new realities being unveiled in our midst from places that we've never seen or experienced before, in this, in this sort of viewpoint and perspective, is God a God that is an accommodating gentleman, so to speak, or is God in process with us? Or what, what is happening in the unveiling of new realities and God as possibilities are forming within our own selves. Yeah. I kind of go back to the very definition of religion for me here. And that uh, essentially, for me, religion is what binds us together. All right. So it's the way I make sense out of reality. You know, a Muslim makes sense of reality in a particular way. A Christian makes sense of reality in a particular way. Behind all that, God is trying to break in. God is trying to reveal God's self to us. And so we're all making our best stab. We're making our best effort to try to understand what it is that we're experiencing and to make sense of our world. And so behind that sort of comes ritual and all of that. But we have to realize that when we engage with a person from another reality, another worldview or perspective, we're standing on sacred ground because that person is trying to make sense of their reality even as I'm trying to make sense of my reality. Uh, and I say in the book, one of the things I used to ask uh, my classes uh, when I was teaching undergraduates was, how much of God, what percentage of God do you think you understand? Give me a percent. What percentage? I asked that to a friend the other day, and he, he said, don't you get snarky and nitpicky with me. And then I, I'll leave out some choice words. I was like, I'm going to use that, and it backfired, by the way. Okay. Well, it, it's backfired on me, too. But, uh, you know, you say, what percentage of God do you think you know? And some guy would weigh in, it was always a guy, at 70%. Yeah. 70%. Yeah. This dude knew 70% of God. So I would say, you come up and teach the class. Let me come down there and sit because you know way more than I do. We, you know, obviously we know 0.0001% of God. And yet we inhabit a tradition, a Christian tradition that wants to tell us everything there is to know about God. 
And so the first place we've got to get to is for us to admit what our own tradition tells us. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. You do not know me. And if we don't know God and we affirm God's trying to break in, then we've got to go to our Muslim friend or our Buddhist friend and say, hey, man, you've got something to teach me. So will you unpack blessing in the context of the Hebrew scriptures with that, is it Nifal? Nifal. Nifal passive form in Genesis 12. (laughs) When we read that God tells Abraham that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Is Abraham Israel empowered to bless the nations? Or is Abraham Israel an example to which the nations will bless themselves? This is what you can do when you're a mission professor or a church historian and not a biblical scholar, right? You can kind of take things and run with them. So the literal translation in Genesis 12 with the call of Abram, we always, most translations will say uh, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed by you. And the actual word for word translation with the passive is that the, na- the, the families of the earth will bless themselves by you. Now, you go check and you will only find a couple of translations that translate it literally. But you think about the twist, all right? Will bless themselves, bless themselves by you or you will bless them. So if we kind of go with that, that literal interpretation, then suddenly the call of Abram becomes something radically different. It becomes the means by which the families of the earth will, will have a, a, a model, an example of one family who was blessed by God and in return or in turn itself was blessed by the other families of the earth. So it becomes a reciprocal sort of blessing. What we tend to do, well, first Israel does it, right? Israel then sees itself as elect and neglects its mission. And the church comes along and sees itself as elect. And lest we point fingers at Israel, what we tend to do then is to neglect our mission, which is both to be a blessing and to receive the blessing. So it's not just a one-way street. We are to be in this thing that God's accomplished by scattering us across the earth and by putting us in our own families and then gradually pulling us back together. God's intention is that we will receive the blessing as much as we give the blessing. And we've, we've gotten it turned around both as Israel and mm-hmm. as the church because we want to we wanna give it, but we don't want to receive it. That runs so counter to the, the narrative of empirical empire missions that mm-hmm. the tradition I came from does, where we send out and we've got to save the world, and we hear great stories about how that's successful, but but there's nothing coming back, and there's no room for it to come back. Exactly. Yeah. And it's interesting because many of the earliest Western missionaries actually got it. It's very interesting because 
for example, in Burma with the Judsons, who were the first Baptist missionaries in Burma, the first convert to Christianity from Buddhism there said this in a letter to the missionary, I take refuge in Jesus Christ. Well, if you know anything about Buddhism, when a monk enters the monastery, the monk says, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the uh, Sangha or the community, I take refuge in the Dharma or the teachings of the Buddha, which suddenly unlocks a whole lot more about the notion of God and refuge. And if we're open to receiving the blessing, then we're enriched by a Buddhist perspective that we would, nor, you know, we, we want to discount and yeah. say, oh, no, no, we shouldn't take anything from that yeah. tradition. Yeah, what, what's really interesting about that is that I think five years ago, and maybe even fewer than that, Janelle and I probably would have freaked out about uh, not just the, the content we maybe have been on board with, but the reality of it. And so that difference between interfaith conversation and these inner inner spiritual workings and experiences. And so one of our, our good friends, Rabbi Stephen Booth Nadav, uh, references Matthew Fox's book, uh, One River, Many Wells, and he talks about spirit being the river and these religions being the wells and that we, we tap into this source. And so he's this rabbi, and it, you can listen to that podcast later, but he, it, I don't know which episode it is. It's somewhere on our podcast. But he talks, uh, he talks a lot about how at first that was frightening for him as a rabbi, but when he would go into like with his Buddhist friend or his Muslim friend into their community and experience these things, he would then go back into his own tradition and it would enrich and enliven his own tradition. And recently, Janelle and I were even talking about this, about how we've been dabbling more, not really into Buddhism, but friends who are into Buddhism, which makes us into it because they're our friends. And then we read scripture that goes, oh, I never would have seen scripture in this, in this way had I not just been talking about these practices in Buddhism with my friend who's into it right now. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah. I had a woman ask me one time, can I be a Buddhist and a Baptist? And I said, well, you can be a Buddhist if you want to, but you'll always be a Southern Buddhist and a member of the Southern Buddhist Convention. Um, I mean, you know, we grow up. I'm, I could not be Baptist if my life depended on it. I'm going to see God through a Baptist lens. I'm going to understand God through a Baptist lens. Don't be afraid to engage otherness and difference. Nothing's going to happen to your Methodistness. Tom Slater, uh, being with Baptist, nothing's going to happen to your Baptistness. It's all going to be in there, but my God, the stuff of God that you're going to unlock in the experience. And I tell the story about the very fundamentalist student who went with me to the mosque here in Atlanta, and we go in, and he didn't want to go, and we're watching the the men. Obviously, the men in one area, the women in the other. The men are uh, bowing; they're doing their prayers. Uh, and I mean, they're serious about it. And this guy's like, they do this five times a day, you know, and yes, we you know, have the dialogue and get back in the van. And he just sits up in the, in the middle seat and he leans up toward me and he says, Dr. Nash, we, we don't pray like that in my church. I mean, we just, we just don't pray like that. Um, we don't get down on our knees and pray to God like that. And I said, well, you know, we, you know, like my grandfather's church, we go down to the altar sometimes and pray. No, 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 we don't do that. Maybe we ought to get with these guys and learn something about prayer. Yeah. And think about the power of that. That's one phenomenological encounter. That's just one. Yeah. yeah. And imagine where you go if you continue the engagement and the dialogue.
over a long course of time. Yeah. I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir, but if you haven't gone and worshipped or practiced or experienced another faith, go. Go do it. I mean, it, it will change your perspective. And start small, okay? You don't have to do a whole service. Our Sikh friend, uh, I have a group of people that are different multi-faith leaders in Denver, and so he told us uh, openly and honestly, so just come for the last 15 minutes, because we do like an hour of chanting. You don't need to sit there for that. Just come for, you know, 10, 15 minutes, and then we'll feed you. That's what we tell our friends. Don't come for the sermon. Wait till it's over and get the potluck. That's right. So... <laughs> But any experience you have opens a door to a, a wider view of, of spirit. And it's hard to put into words sometimes how that changes your own perception of what you believe and how you see the world. I have a lot of hope because of the, the people who engage in interfaith dialogue who are willing to experience worship together in each other's place of worship come together and learn at, at that point of our greatest openness and vulnerability to God in our own traditions. So yeah. willing to go to that space, then God does powerful things. Yeah, absolutely. So I know with time, we're going to take some questions in a second. One last question for you. And then if out there you have questions, we're going to probably about 10, 15. What do you think, Nathan? Yeah. that right? Okay. So uh, as the Western Church, as we move forward, if you could just give us uh, some basic, like a methodology, a formulation, if you will, for some kind of communal transformation as we approach these new realities and new friendships and new experiences in the world around us. It, it is so incredibly simple. All right. Our space, you think about your home. Our home is our most intimate space. It's where we are who we are. And to leave that space is a religious act. To go out of it as a believer, follower of Jesus Christ, and to simply go across the street and meet your neighbor is a spiritual act. So if we start, if you could get a congregation to do nothing more than for one year know the person beside you on the left, the person beside you on the right, and the two apartment or houses or whatever across the street. Enter their lives. Not, don't necessarily just give them your hospitality but become guests in their space. Allow their space to become the place that they host you so that you then experience the vulnerability of being in somebody else's space and you suddenly have to open yourself up to that possibility. I mean, my God, we can't even do that. So how are we going to anticipate that a congregation can go down to the mosque or to the temple, right? Because we don't know anymore even how to do the most basic step of, hospita uh, of guesting in the world. 
uh, we, we want it to, to, to be all about hosting in the church, right? We want to host. We want people to come to us. We want to have greeters at the doors and so forth. But I think the, the simplest step, the most practical step, is to simply cross the friggin' street. Awesome. Awesome, yeah. Dr. Robert Nash, this is Moving the Equator, the Families of the Earth, and the Mission of the Church. I highly recommend it. And there is a large chunk in the middle that deals specifically with the scriptures. And so if you're like, wow, what about the Bible? Believe me, like over half the book is about the Bible. And I, we, I wish we had more time. If we had another hour, raised, we could talk about that. So. I raised Jesus from the dead four times. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you don't think that'll test your patience, I will. Uh, it's, it's a very good book, and I appreciate you for that. So we're going to take some questions right now for about maybe 10, 15 minutes. And then... Uh, if you need to use the restroom, of course, you know, I know it's, it's one of those churches where it's every movement you can hear. It's okay. No one's going to point and look. Um, so this could be a good time if you need to do that. So any questions right now? And then if you have, a, actually, if you have a question, do you mind speaking to the mic so we can put this into the podcast? So my question is to you, Dr. Nash. So one thing that I have, I don't want to say struggle with, but I've been struggling with. So I have a new roommate this semester who's from China. And she's all about like the inclusive community. But the thing that I really struggle with is allowing myself to be her guest, even though it's my house too. Um, allowing myself to be her guest to the point where doing things the way she does them, even though it makes me uncomfortable sometimes. Like, mm -hmm. how do you put aside your discomfort in order for somebody to fully serve you, if that makes sense? Yeah. That's a great question, and I think part of the, the challenge is simply allowing ourselves to be vulnerable, you know, to, to experience whatever happens. Um, I mentioned in the book a seminary professor of mine who said his mantra was, nothing never happens. So God's brought this person into your space, and God has brought you into her space. Um, so as part of that reality, um, you've got to allow yourself to be carried to places you don't want to go. It kind of comes back to Peter at the end of John's gospel when Jesus said to him, you know, one day people are gonna carry you to a place you don't want to go. Uh, and there is a, a kind of passivity and a giving up of self and relaxing into it and letting yourself be carried along. Uh, it, it just, it takes practice. It takes a lot of practice. Yeah. Dr. Nash, why don't you tell the story, because you're a good storyteller, tell the story about the title of your book and, and, and what that means yeah, so the title of the book is Moving the Equator, uh, The Families of the Earth and the Mission of the Church. And the story that sort of gave rise to the title uh, in the late 1970s, I'm thinking it was about 1979, the Nash men are rocking on the front porch of my grandfather's house in Athens, Georgia. And as we rock, uh, you know, and why are the men rocking on the porch? The women are in the kitchen cleaning up the meal. I admit, I've changed a lot since then. But we're rocking. 
And uh, so we're talking about the weather and how it's hotter in the winter than it used to be and colder in the summer. When suddenly from one end of the porch, one of my great uncles opines, I know why that is. Now, when this particular uncle spoke, we were all ears because you never knew what was going to come out of the man's mouth. My father liked to go to him on, so my father said, well, why is that? Can we use a cuss word on this? Yes. Okay. Hell yes. My, 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 uncle, my great uncle said, uh, well, I read about it the other day. They'd gone and moved the damn equator. They picked that thing up and they put it down somewhere else. So it's hot where it used to be cold, and it's cold where it used to be hot. Now, my father, who again liked to go this uncle on, said, well, who moved it? <laughs> and my great uncle, not to be deterred, said, United Nations moved it. They're always going and doing fool things like that. And the way I kind of go with this in the book is to say that, you know, we laughed about that family story for years and years until one day in the mid-90s, I'm sitting in my easy chair at home, and a profound thought strikes me. They've gone and moved the damn equator. They picked that thing up, and they put it down somewhere else. And my great uncle was right, because it's hot where it used to be cold, and it's cold where it used to be hot. And if you want to ask the people who know, ask the traditional churches that you come into contact with because they're where it used to be hot that it's now cold. And the places they thought were cold are now hot because we sort of assumed if we took the Christian faith to the world, the world was going to go, oh, that's it. I get it now. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, somebody had this idea in 1976 that the Southern Baptist Convention should share the gospel with every person in the world by the year 2000. All right? By the year 2000. I think Nazarenes did that yeah. too. Well, not with the Nazarenes, not with the Methodists, not uh, the Baptists, Southern Baptists were going to do it. And my idea is that what God said was, I'm going to share every family of the earth with you by the year 2000. And let's see what you do with it. And I don't think we did. <laughs> we did very well. <laughs> Any other questions? Gorillas. Uh, thank you, Dr. Nash. So I had the great pleasure of taking your course last semester. And being the first class to read the book, I might. <laughs> and, and being the guinea pigs on the book, and we were honored uh, to be that. Um, just two points, really. One, in the class, you talk about a, a different way of reading scripture. Um, in the class, we looked at particular passages where Jesus uh, was asked what you might say is the ultimate question. Uh, we look at passages about uh, particularly the Good Samaritan, and I think often we forget the question that prompted that whole story. And you directed us to go back and take a look at that passage, and we find that it's a lawyer who asks, 
what do you do to inherit eternal life? And you've taught us that instead of Jesus enumerating these tenets and beliefs, inerrancy, baptism, he simply told a story about how to engage otherness and difference in the story of the Good Samaritan. And then you gave us a model to think about it, and I'm hoping you could share a bit more about that. You gave us the model of the cathedral versus the carnival as a way to talk about how we make spaces accessible and inviting so we can honor the other. Could you share a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah the images of the cathedral, we, you know, in the middle part of the 20th century, we had this notion that there was this single ceiling over us that was the Judeo-Christian reality. And it was sort of like we were living in a cathedral, inhabiting a cathedral. And then something happened that caused the roof of the cathedral to fall in. I mean, the whole Notre Dame fire thing is kind of an interesting, horrific thing. But nevertheless, the roof of the cathedral caves in and suddenly you're exposed to the air. The sky is your ceiling and the dirt is your floor. And in many ways, for me, that's the reality of what has happened for us as the church we thought we knew the reality. The people who engaged otherness and difference were the missionaries who went to the front door, flew off to another place, and then came back to tell us about it. And then one day, the cathedral roof is gone. We find ourselves at a county fair. The sky's our ceiling, the dirt's our floor. And you think about where it takes, which takes greater spiritual vitality to live in the cathedral with the ceiling over your head or to inhabit the fair where the sky is your ceiling and the dirt is your floor. So we wound up with a church that thought it was living in the cathedral. And when it got to the fair, it lacked this, many congregations lacked the spiritual vitality to inhabit the fair. And, you know, the great story for me, uh, I took a class to a Jewish synagogue. And uh, at the end of our time with a rabbi, a student said to the rabbi, do you Jewish folks try to get Gentiles to convert to Judaism? And he responded with a traditional rabbinic response, which is, well, if a Gentile comes to me the first time, I tell him, go away, you don't want to be Jewish. If he comes back a second time, I'll look at him like he's crazy and remind him about the Holocaust and tell him to get out of here. He doesn't want to be Jewish. But he said, and I quote, if the fool comes back a third time, then I think he might want to be Jewish. And we began the process of bringing him into the Jewish faith. Imagine a Sunday morning at your congregation, if you're in a traditional one, and somebody comes down the aisle and wants to be Christian. And you look at them and say, are you nuts? Have you read the New Testament? Do you know what it means to be a Christian? Take up your cross daily and follow me. Love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. Get out of here. You don't want to be Christian. And then what happens after church? You're fired. That's what happens after church. Yeah, that's what happens after church. But you see what we've done, right? We've, we've compromised the faith 
in order to make it acceptable. And in the process, we've lost the core of what it is. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with your words here because I, I really think people should read this book. You say that the knowledge of God manifested in every corner of the earth and every family is most fully revealed only when we recognize the divine presence in each other and we share the knowledge of God with each other. One has been particularly blessed. And we're blessed by your words. Appreciate you uh, being on the Brew Theology Podcast with the third annual McAfee School of Theology live podcast and event here in Hotlanta. Nobody says that except for outsiders. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate you. So we want to thank, uh, again, McAfee School of Theology and Brew Theology together to unite. Yes. If you're a seminary student that's listening out there or you're curious, I would encourage you, if you're in the South, Atlanta is a cool city. Mm-hmm. And these people at McAfee are really cool people. So, uh, you know, talk... Nathan, sit right in front of me, the admissions guy, right? Greg's over here, the, the dean. So I'm telling you, meet these guys. They're great. The professors are awesome. So McAfee School of Theology, thank you. So if you like this episode, by the way, share it on the line. We are at Brew Theology at Facebook and Instagram, Brew underscore on Twitter, iTunes, Podbean, Google Play, Pocket Cast. Share it, love it, rate it, review it, and thank you again. Peace.